0: This is Archive Atlanta, episode 251, Lincoln Country Club and Golf Course Desegregation Replay. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shaped the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. I had Coca-Cola part two. Written and ready to record, I swear, but it has been the longest day. I usually try to work from home on Thursdays, I didn't, and so it was like insane traffic, parenting, tour stuff, and I just, you know, looked at the clock and I had to be realistic, and recording and editing a new episode wasn't gonna happen. So I wanted to re release something from the archives, but I wanted it to be still relevant to Black history because we are in Black History Month. And then at the very same time, my friend Blake over at It's Hour Atlanta, um, posted a reel about the Alfred Tup Holmes golf course and the restoration of it. And so I thought, perfect, I am going to re-release this episode that is from the summer of 2021 about Lincoln Country Club and the fight for golf course desegregation in Atlanta. So if you haven't listened to it already, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you learned something. And I will be back next week with a really fun interview. And Coca-Cola will be here the first week of March. So this week, we're talking about Lincoln Country Club. Born at the start of the Great Depression, from the need and desire of middle and upper class Black Atlantans to not only have a place to play golf, but to establish a recreation place where they could have parties and social events and gather. As a cemetery lover, I knew about Lincoln Cemetery. I had been there many times to visit the graves of W.A. Scott and Tiger Flowers. And on the other side of the coin, I knew the basic history of golf course desegregation in Atlanta. What I didn't know was how these two things were connected, or that the Lincoln Country Club even existed. From the 1924 fight to even establish a second Black cemetery in Atlanta, to the 1930 opening of the Country Club, through the story of Black golfers and their fight to desegregate Atlanta's courses. This is such interesting history, you do not want to miss it. So before we talk about the Country Club, we have to start with the cemetery, because they gave the land for the club. It's a little confusing at first. Southview Cemetery was chartered in 1886, and it was established as the first cemetery solely for Black Atlantans. And it would not be until the 1920s that the community attempted to open another one, and, surprise, were met with extreme pushback from white neighbors. In November of 1924, a petition was filed by Rockdale Cemetery Company to establish a quote-unquote Negro Cemetery near Simsville, which today is the area just south of Center Hill. The pushback ensued almost immediately. So proponents are like, hey, we need this burial space. And opponents, neighboring white residents mainly, were outraged over the fact that their property values could be lowered. And then they point out that Southview still has plenty of room, and there was apparently a cemetery called Chester Hill Um, that had room for 200,000 more people. By the following month, the county had approved the petition, and the company name was changed to Fairview Cemetery. And at this time, the area we're talking about, it's four miles from the center of Atlanta, but it's not inside the city limits. so all of these approvals and permits have to go through the Fulton County Commissioners. Now Atlanta, though, attempted to exert its influence in the pushback. the two main parties that are complaining here are the Central Railroad of Georgia, who owned most of the surrounding property um, around the cemetery, and then the owner of the Atlanta Child's Home. And the Child's Home was a 1910 charity that was established to take care of mothers and their babies going through hard times. They had moved out to this location around 1922, and it was a white organization. In January of 1925, the groups asked the Fulton commissioners to revoke the cemetery's license, claiming that this was a quote-unquote white section, and the Atlanta City Council had a rule that said cemeteries could not be established four miles out from the center of the city without, like, approval from them or something. And the city says, verbatim, quote, by reason of the emotional nature of the colored race displayed on such occasions as funerals, it would constitute a nuisance and it would be harmful to the children of the Atlantis Child Home. End quote. It would take almost a year for the legal battle to settle, and the Supreme Court of Georgia upheld the permit, so win for the cemetery. But wait, It's never that easy. By January of 1926, there was a full-blown lawsuit to declare the cemetery a nuisance, Um, and injunction proceedings were brought by Fairview Cemetery Company against the citizens that were trying to interfere. So the good news is that the injunction was granted, and eventually the cemetery's legal name changed to Lincoln Cemetery, and it was established on Simpson Road, which today is Joseph E. Boone Boulevard, and its cemetery is still there for you today to visit. The first mention of a golf course for Black Atlantans is Piney Wood Country Club, which was described as a nine-hole course built by some ex-caddies in 1927 on farmland in Scottsdale, which was in DeKalb County. This was the only place for African-American golfers to play that was not being a caddy for a white golfer on a white-only course. So in 1930, James Ivey and a group of men entered into a lease option for unused land belonging to Lincoln Cemetery for a golf course. Ivy was a pioneer mortician who founded Ivy Brothers Funeral Home in 1912, and he, along with Clark Blackshear, Guy Dobbs, S.J. Grimmett, T.R. Grimes, Lorenza Fisher, and Burrell Heath are all listed as the founding members of Lincoln Country Club. Ivy also served as the first president. And their new nine-hole course was designed by Lorenza Fisher, who was an insurance agent, and T.R. Grimes. On this spot, they erect a simple rectangular clubhouse described in the papers looking a lot like a log cabin. And it was used for parties, social events, you know, fraternity events, sorority events. It's important to note the lack of spaces that Black Atlantans had to socialize in. This is Jim Crow Atlanta, so if it wasn't on Auburn Avenue or on Hunter Street, there just weren't other places like this. It's not like Black country clubs abounded. I think Lincoln is considered the fourth of its kind in the entire Southeast. 1932 also marked a massive reorganization of the club. Um, Sounds like they did like a board of directors and they voted in people. So Ivy was reelected president at this time. And then Mrs. Faulkner, who was apparently an exceptional golfer, she was the wife of a first congregational pastor. um, She was at the club recruiting women to play. They held their first annual Southern Open amateur golf tournament organized mainly by A.D. Crosby, who was the golf pro at the time, and they held it over July 4th weekend, so the 2nd to the 4th. And this was very bootstraps affair, so like the instructions for registering were to mail your $1. fifty entry fee to Crosby's house, which is still standing by the way, um, and this placed you in the running for the $60 cash prize winning. A short aside about the history of black golf tournaments, um, the Professional Golfers Association, or the PGA as we all know it, was formed in 1916 exclusively for white men, and it would remain that way until 1961. In 1925, a group of black male golfers formed the United Golfers Association, which operated a series of professional golf tournaments across the country in the age of segregation. And a lot of local Atlantans that I will mention belonging to and playing at Lincoln played in these tournaments as well. Many players would also play in smaller local tournaments like this, and then they would move on to larger national events. So like the winner of the first Southern Open at Lincoln was John Dendy, who was from Asheville, North Carolina. In 1933, it was Howard Wheeler. Now Wheeler was a local. He learned to caddy at both Brookhaven Country Club and Eastlake Golf Club. And the story was that when the round was over, he would grab a club and he would mimic the swings of the people he just witnessed. Now, while he did go on to become caddy master, it was called at Eastlake, he was not allowed to play recreationally on local courses or in tournaments other than at Lincoln Golf Course. In 1933, W.E.B. Du Bois, who was living in Atlanta, of course, being a professor at um, Atlanta University, became a member at Lincoln In 1934, there was a membership drive with a goal of reaching 200 dues-paying people. So it would cost $2 as an initiation fee or like a sign-up fee, and then it was $1 per month. They also had 16 black golfers from Lincoln that traveled to the National Negro Golf Tournament in Detroit that year. And they had like a big farewell party at the clubhouse. And President Miller, Arthur Miller at the time, he had reduced the club's debt. He repaired the clubhouse. He had set up tennis courts. Um, They put a new roof on, new curtains, widened the driveway, and just generally improved the grounds. In 1935, Fred Toomer, who was an Atlanta life insurance executive, became president. He raised the annual tournament winnings to $225. And you have to remember, like, all of this is in the Depression. That is a lot of money. And he erected a new clubhouse. There was also a full-time professional hired. And the who's who of Black Atlanta are playing golf at this time. So the newspaper is always peppered with, you know, Dr. Hamilton Holmes is here, Gilbert DeLorme, very much publicizing who's playing here. In the same year, the club also held its first annual spring amateur tournament, and Lincoln was outfitted with upgraded electricity. So this provided new lights, they could have a radio, they had organs put in, uh, there was new cooking equipment, refrigeration, and Toomer's wife, so the president's wife, was the one who flipped the switch when it was all complete. That year, Southern Open was really well publicized. There was a famous person that came. Uh, the tournament was won by local golfers. And Paramount Pictures reached out with a desire to film part of it. And so a couple months later, they actually played it at the Bailey's New Ashby Theater. That's still standing. By the way, it's in dire need of preservation. Um, but it's just, to me, it's so cool that everybody was piling in there to watch themselves play golf. In December, tragedy struck. At 5.30, a fire started from sparks emitted from the fireplace hearth, and then by 7 p.m., only the clubhouse chimney and pillars remained. And when the firemen arrived on scene, there was no water source for them to hook up to. So the club lost their piano or organ, three slot machines, a cooking range, a refrigerator, all the beer and food, all the snacks. damages estimated at over $2,000, and none of it was insured. So, members quickly regroup. They start holding meetings at the Butler Street YMCA off Auburn Avenue. And by January of 1937, they had collected $400 in pledges and they established a Ways and Means Committee led by Dr. Hamilton Holmes, who would find donors and raise cash. And it worked. Just five months later, they have contractor A.C. Williams building a new clubhouse. And in June of 1937, they formally dedicated. It had a dance hall, it had concessions, again operated by Mrs. Toomer. They had a dining room, a check room, and two porches, one on the east side and one on the south side. The whole outside was painted a tobacco brown. All of this, of course, coincides with a huge membership drive. The joining fee is now $1, and the annual dues are either $10 a year or $1.50 a month. And those monthly rates were cut in half for women, women, or for schoolboys. There was a lot of Clark and Morehouse kids that joined the golf club. Now, 1937 is also the year that brought the drama. And this is one of the handful of times that Lincoln actually made its way to the white newspaper, to the Constitution. And the headlines there read, quote, two factions of Negro country club in Fulton Superior Court, end quote. So what happened is that Lincoln Golf Country Club Inc. takes new Lincoln Golf Country Club Inc., to court for almost $6,000. Why? Let me try to explain, because it's kind of confusing. So the original Lincoln Corporation chartered in 1929, and they leased this land from the cemetery. They made that initial investment, you know, they built a clubhouse, they put in tennis courts, they put in a pool. This new Lincoln Corporation charters just months ago, so in 1937. And the old group is basically accusing them of confiscating their property. What appears to have happened is that when the clubhouse burned down, the original group had no claim to ownership. Remember, like, lease the land. So the lease had expired by this point. There's no equity at stake. And the men who raised the money for this new clubhouse decide, you know, we're making this money or we're bringing in this money. We're going to form our own legal entity to pretty much take control and go with their vision. Basically, the old group was led by the original people, Ivy, Grimmett, Fisher, Grimes. And then the new people were President Toomer, Hamilton Holmes, and names like that. And the new group won. So When you see historical references to the club listed as the new Lincoln Golf and Country Club, this is where that word comes into play and why it was named that. Now, from what I can read, there didn't seem to be a lot of blood, but bad blood. So, you know, Toomer is president, but Ivy's funeral home was still donating trophies for tournaments and stuff like that. So I think everybody just kind of got over it by the next year. In 1937, Dr. Holmes came up with a citywide golf tournament, so they were going to do 36 36 holes of golf in one day and have a mix of professional and amateurs. In 1938, Lincoln produced two national and two Dixie champions, and Alfred Tup Holmes won two titles. They even had an 11-year-old girl, her name was John L. Butler, um, who was considered a golf prodigy. By 1943, Lincoln Golf and Country Club went private, meaning that you could only play the course if you were a member. In 1944, they elected a new president, Dr. Bowden, And then two years later, the clubhouse suffers another devastating fire. The employees told reporters that they closed the club down at 4 a.m. So somewhere between 4 a.m. and sunrise, the building burns. And it's estimated to be like a $7,000 loss. So two years after that, in March of 1948, there was a formal opening of a new clubhouse. And they considered this fire resistant, basically it's made of concrete. Um, and there is a historical photo I saw online of people dancing inside. And it just, it was like a cinder block wall. I'm wondering if this is right around this time of rebuilding. Now, believe it or not, two years later, so 1951, there's another fire. And this is blamed on a defective flu. It gutted the interior, but the walls remained. And so here's my hot take. This is purely conjecture. I don't always give my opinion. I did not read this in the paper. It was not even implied. But if you've listened to the episode on residential bombings in Atlanta, you know that 1948, 1949, 1950, 1951, and further, were the height of racially motivated terroristic bombings in the city. The idea that a black golf club house accidentally burns three times in history twice in a two-year time frame doesn't add up for me. So I don't know if someone knows something, maybe it's out there, but I just don't see this being an accident in 48 and in 51. So in 1951, African-American golfing in Atlanta would change forever, in part by the actions of Dr. Holmes and his two sons. And I've mentioned their names throughout the episodes, but Dr. Hamilton Holmes started his life in Atlanta as a physician in East Point. And his son, Alfred, his nickname was Tup, Holmes was an amateur golf champion who played for the Tuskegee Institute in the 30s. Um, he also won tons of tournaments. He was he was very well known. As an adult, he worked at Lockheed Martin. His other son, Oliver Wendell Holmes, was a reverend, also excellent golfer. And this trio would begin the fight to ultimately desegregate the city's municipal golf courses. So what they did was, at least how I read it, they sent a very light-skinned, blonde-haired friend to play at Bobby Jones's golf course, which is in Chastain Park, and he got in. So a couple of hours later, the three make their way to Bobby Jones, they ask for admittance, and they're denied by the manager. At this point in history, Atlanta is 59% white, and they have five... 18-hole municipal courses to choose from. Black people, however, make up 41% of the population, and they only have the private nine-hole Lincoln Country Club available. So this group, um, Holmes and his sons, they form something called the Atlanta Golf Committee, and they hire lawyers. They have the lawyers formally request admittance. So there's three lawyers. There's Ari Thomas, E.E. Moore, Uh, Jr. and S.S. Robinson. And they write a letter, again, formally asking for permission to play. It's denied. Everybody's ignoring it. Mayor Hartsfield's ignoring it. Um, There's a chance to actually build a black municipal golf course. Councilmen, uh, there's one or two councilmen that completely oppose. They don't want to put money towards that. And so it takes about two years, believe it or not, for this case to formulate and then make its way through the court system. In 1954, Holmes wins the case, but the implementation was deferred. And we have outrage, of course, from Gov- Governor Marvin Griffin, who I've talked about and quoted many times, um, saying that commingling of the races in Georgia State Parks and recreation area- areas would not be tolerated. Now, meanwhile, Atlanta Mayor William Hartsfield weighs the option of what is he gonna do? Like, does it really make sense to sell five city golf courses to private individuals and then close everything down to just comply with this? Um, And there's a quote from him saying, uh, quote, should we close our courses and it would deprive nearly 70,000 white players and nearly 100 city employees of their jobs and their rights in order to deny a few Negro players the use of the golf links, end quote. Now, while the court ruled that refusing African-Americans the right to plan city-owned golf courses was obviously discrimination, they also upheld that separate but equal doctrine. So Atlanta had to, it was either integrate or construct a golf course that would be quote-unquote separate but equal. And that just wasn't going to fly. I mean, at this point, the tides are turning, Uh, the NAACP steps in, Thurgood Marshall actually joined Holmes' legal team as lead attorney, and they file a series of appeals, finally making its way all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. On November 7th, 1955, the Supreme Court sent the case back down to the District Court with very strongly worded instructions on ending segregation. So it would be December 24th, Christmas Eve of 1955, that Tup Holmes, Oliver Holmes, and Charles Bell tee up at the North Fulton Golf Course at Chastain Park. And I wish that the story was that we all lived happily ever after, but Atlanta golf world would make attempts well into the late 60s to keep black players out of tournaments and out of courses, but I think I'm going to save that all for a golf episode in the future. So there you have it, the story of Lincoln Country Club and golf desegregation in Atlanta. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating or a review. You can also visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.